I'm thankful that Zach allows me the opportunity to be up here and talk with y'all. This is the only opportunity in my life where I get to be described as the one with more hair. So, you know, that and, that and lack of musical ability are why I don't join the praise team because Jeremy and Dylan are messing up the curve on that for me. But some of you can relate to that situation because you've experienced that same kind of change in your life. Changes around us, on us, and in us. You know, your friendships change. Technology has changed how we live. You know, I used to know quite a few telephone numbers. Now I think I know about seven. And three of those are pizza places. (laughs) And one of those burnt down about 15 years ago. So 7272 is not doing me any good. But, But our tastes change. Some of us have, you know, less hair on our head. Some of us have more gray hairs on our head than we used to have. But sometimes we change more than we hoped or intended to. So we all experience change. We all cause change. But do you know what's better than change? Making a difference. Change is inevitable. But when you and I are intentional about change, then we can make a difference. If you get a gym membership then that intention will change the amount of money that you have in your wallet. But if you're intentional about going to the gym, you can also change your physical fitness level. You can be intentional and feed the hungry. You can be intentional and reach out to someone who is hurting. So making a difference is change that happens because of intention. So sometimes we become dissatisfied with certain aspects of our lives and we think we'd like a change when what we should seek is a positive difference. We need to move in a positive direction in our own lives but we should also seek to make a positive impact and a positive difference in the lives of others. So this is our second week going through the Gospel of Mark. Last week Zach started off by talking to us about who Jesus is, all right? He is the Messiah. He isn't just the appetizer. He is the main course. He is the Son of God. And because of who he is, we can learn a great deal from what he does. So today we're looking at him as Jesus, maker of difference, And we're going to focus on the fact that Jesus is a difference maker. But before we get into Mark, I want to look at a verse in 2 Corinthians that kind of sums up what we're going to see Jesus doing here in Mark chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Jesus intentionally creates change. Where Jesus goes, he makes a difference. When Jesus enters the picture, new creations appear. So today, as we go through this chapter in Mark, we're going to look at three ways that Jesus can make a difference. So the first way that Jesus makes a difference, number one is he changes lives. So let's look at how he does that for someone, starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, 
the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So Jesus is preaching, and it is standing room only. Nobody can even get close to the door of the house where he is preaching at. Some guys come along. Their friend is paralyzed. They can't get near the door, but they have a plan. They say, if we can just get our friend to Jesus, we know that he can make him able to walk. So they tear a hole in the roof and lower their friend to Jesus. So long before Elvis or the Rolling Stones or Tom Petty, Jesus was the first to tear the roof off. Did you know... That takes a minute to land. All right, did you know... You can have faith that is remarkable to God. Let's look at Mark 2, 5. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. So there are other times when Jesus commends people for their faith. What was so impressive about the faith of these guys? They were not going to allow any obstacle to stand between their friend and Jesus. God accepts all kinds of faith. In fact, he says that faith as small as a mustard seed is enough to move mountains. So we know it's not the size of our faith that can make us effective. It's the size of the God in whom we place our faith. But there is something to be said for for being serious about our faith. Serious faith moves God to serious action. So, Anyways, the faith of these people makes such an impression on Jesus that he declares, son, your sins are forgiven. And that causes a stir. There are some Pharisees present. Let's look at verse 7 for their take on this. They say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the Pharisees hear Jesus forgive this guy. And they are outraged. And that's based on who the Pharisees are. So maybe you're thinking, Pharisees, I've heard of them, but who are they exactly? So in Christianity today, we have different denominations, right? We can relate to that. So this church over here is Methodist, or this one is Baptist, or this other one is Pentecostal or Presbyterian. And even if we don't know specifically what each of those believes, we know that, okay, this group has some different beliefs about the Bible than this group over here, right? We understand that, we know that. Pharisees are like that, but for first century Judaism. So they're a group within the Jewish belief system who held beliefs that set them apart from other Jews. The Pharisees were a pretty powerful and influential group, and their focus was on telling people to keep the laws of the Old Testament. But their idea of keeping the law went beyond what the Bible said. So, for instance, if you took the Ten Commandments and you wrote them down, list them one through ten, the Pharisees would have a 1A and a 1B and a 1C. And eventually, if you listen to them long enough, they'll get to the second commandment where they have a 2A and 2B. You get the idea. So they have all of these rules, and we'll talk more about what that looks like here in a few minutes. 
But the Pharisees viewed themselves as the morality police. They were the first ones who are going to speak up and say, I see what you're doing there. That does not please God. So if the focus was we want to follow the rules of God so we can be righteous with God, that would be impractical because we're all imperfect, but we get it, right? We all think like that occasionally. Obedience equals reward. That's how your parents grew you up. That's how your parents trained you, right? If you do blank, we'll go out for ice cream. If you don't do blank, then I'll take your shoes away and make you go to school barefoot for a week. That kind of thing, right? So, so we all have that obedience equals reward kind of thinking kind of ingrained in our brains. But if you really dig in and read about the Pharisees, they're actually aiming for power. They want to be the ones who have all the religious power. You have to come to us if you want to be right with God. And we'll tell you about the many, many rules that you need to follow. So if I get my jollies and my sense of self-importance from controlling others, and along comes Jesus, and he tells some paralyzed guy, your sins are forgiven. Does that sit well with me? No, I'm the keeper of righteousness. How dare Jesus not consult me first? Does Jesus know who in the world I am? He in fact does, and that's why he said it. These folks are fault finders. These guys are somewhere in the crowd, and they see Jesus with this guy. And they hear him, or they hear Jesus forgive the guy's sins. And Jesus hears them grumbling about it. So where in the crowd are they? They're close by, right? If these guys are close by Jesus in this packed house that nobody else can approach, when did they get there? These dudes got up early so they could get close enough to find a reason to complain. Have you ever known someone who would rather cross four lanes of traffic to complain than stay where they are and say something nice? <laughs> Nobody wants to be around that. There's no reason to be like that. So if you get up in the morning and you scroll through your social media looking for someone to argue with, somebody to gossip about, or somebody to make you mad then could I suggest that you might be starting your day off poorly? And know what Jesus thinks about that kind of attitude. So they hear Jesus, Jesus hears them. So he says this, verses 9 through 12. He says, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. What's the guy do? He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Jesus asked a very practical question. He says, you Pharisees claim you can tell people how to be forgiven and be right with God. But I say this guy was just forgiven by God. 
What proof can you offer up? What proof can I offer up? So Jesus makes it put up or shut up time. So he says, get up and walk to that paralyzed guy. And what's he do? Exactly that. So the first thing we see in this chapter is that Jesus makes a difference in lives. The guy was paralyzed, but he left no longer paralyzed, but also forgiven of his sins. Next way that Jesus makes a difference. Number two, he changes our direction. We pick up later and people are once again following Jesus around to learn from him. So let's look at verse 14. It says, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Let's take a look at this. Let's talk about this Levi fellow. Anybody know what the more common name is that we call this fellow by? Right, Levi is Matthew. So he is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. You can turn back a couple of pages in your Bible from Mark chapter 2, and you'll be in the Gospel of Matthew. That is this guy, okay? Levi, his account of his time with Jesus. But this is where he starts. And what's he up to? He is working as a tax collector. Jesus is building kind of a weird group to surround himself with. If you wanted to start a religious movement, if you wanted to build a church, I'm not sure the pool you would pick from would be fishermen and tax collectors. Some of you play fantasy football. When you're drafting your fantasy football team, do you ever pick someone who isn't a football player? Round one, I pick my barber. I don't know if there's a rule against that that says that you have to pick actual football players for your fantasy team, but I'm guessing you don't really need one. So if I were going to plant a new church, and that's not God's calling for my life at the moment, don't go starting rumors, but if I were, I might try to recruit people who are already church people. Jesus isn't going down to the synagogue and trying to find those who are already active in God's service. He isn't trying to recruit priests and rabbis. He is engaging ordinary people, the sort of people today, like yourselves, some of you who come to church and you enjoy a walk with God, but those people who have never dreamed that they might be professional Christians. Those are the exact people that Jesus wants to see serving. But fishermen are one thing, right? They provide something important. People probably sought Simon Peter out and and they bought fish from him and then they walked away and had no further thought about him until they needed fish again. Matthew isn't like that. Matthew's a tax collector and if you had to deal with Matthew today, you may have walked away with many thoughts and a few unkind words in your heart. The tax collectors in this day were known for being crooked. Most of them would collect what was owed to Rome plus a little more and keep the extra. So it was a profession that was known for corruption. Was Matthew corrupt? I don't know. We tend to become who we spend time with, right? 
So recently there was a situation in West Virginia with 34 correctional cadets. They completed their training and then they took some class photos. In one of the photos, all 34 of them gave a Nazi salute, which is in poor taste, all right? But ask anyone in here who works in the, in the corrections industry and they'll tell you that Nazi gangs are a serious prison security problem. Okay, so that picture was a major image problem. Are all 34 of the people in that picture a Nazi? Probably not. I'd say the chances are pretty low, so why the picture? One person probably thought it would be funny, and another didn't speak up. And on down the line, they all went along with the crowd. It's easy to go along with the crowd that we're in, right? So, was Matthew one of the thieving tax collectors? Did he get caught up in what everyone else was doing? I don't know. Where was he actually an honest one? I don't know. But when people looked at him, when they looked at Matthew, what do you think they saw? He's one of those thieving tax collectors, right? So, Matthew was one person chosen out of many. When Holly and I were dating... And then early in our marriage, we were really good friends with the man who had been my my youth pastor growing up. And sometimes after church, we would go out to eat, you know, with him and his wife and daughter, usually at Waffle and Egg, but sometimes we'd switch things up. But wherever we went, without fail, someone would come up to him and say hi and chat a minute or whatever. And after a while, you start to realize, wow. Billy knows everybody. But even though he knew everybody, and even though everybody chose to come over and chat, he was there with us. We were the ones that he chose and he picked to invest his time with. We were the ones that he said, hey, you want to go grab a bite too? Being chosen out of many, when you think about it, is quite an honor. There are all these people around. Everyone wants some Jesus time. But he looks at Matthew and he says, you, yeah, you, come with me. This is life-changing. This totally changes Matthew's direction in life. All right, there's nothing wrong with making a living. Don't tell Ron Swanson I said this, but there's nothing wrong with working for the government. As you read the gospel accounts, there are other tax collectors, military leaders, and politicians who come to trust in Jesus. And he never extends the same invitation to those guys to follow him full time. Because they serve a purpose right where they're at. But with Matthew, Jesus extended that invitation. Jesus says, I see you there, but I have a greater purpose for you somewhere else. When Jesus shows up, he provides purpose. I don't know what direction your life was headed in before you became a Christian, but I do know that he laid a different path ahead for you. Jesus changes our direction, and he gives us a greater purpose. All right, so the third way that Jesus is a difference maker is this. 
He changes how we relate to God. Before Jesus came, what did people need to do to be right in God's eyes? Follow his commandments. And if they don't follow the commandments or they couldn't, by the way they couldn't, then they had to go to the priest and offer a sacrifice to cover their sins. So there's this, there's this disconnect, okay? Here's me, here's God, but between us is the sacrifice and the priest. So here comes along Jesus, he's God, and he's here to be the sacrifice, and he's here to be the priest and reconnect what has been disconnected. So let's read verses 23 and 24. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, what are they, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So what is the Sabbath? All right. Exodus 28 through 10 talks about the Sabbath. Okay? It tells us this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. We have a tendency, you know, in our lives to think the Sabbath is on Sunday. That's when we gather in worship, right? The Sabbath occurred not on the first day of the week, but on the seventh day of every week. Specifically, the Sabbath for the Jewish people would have started at sundown on Friday lasted until sundown every Saturday night. So, that, so that's, the, uh, that's the Sabbath. And really it wasn't intended as a day of worship. It was a day of rest. Just as God created the universe in six days and then he rested, he said that people should take a day in the week and rest. In more recent years, science has done studies that show the benefit of regularly taking some time to rest and refresh ourselves. The the Sabbath was a day that God instructed the Israelites to rest. Don't do any work. So the question is, what qualifies as work? Some people need things very specifically defined. My daughter is like that. If she has stuffed animals or blankets in her living room and we tell her, go put those in your room, she'll do it. But whatever she took will be in a pile just across the threshold of her room. It's in her room, but we didn't specify any further, so she did exactly what we told her. So, so, so we've learned we have to give that one very specific direction if we want things to happen. Somewhere along the way, some rabbis who probably meant well asked the question, when God said that we shouldn't do any work on the Sabbath, what did he mean by work? So they came up with 39 categories of work and decide within those 39 categories what activities are prohibited. So one category is reaping. So for instance, if, if, I, if I dig taters, or I pluck an apple from a tree, I'm reaping. Okay, I'm on board with that, I get that. If I'm walking through a field, like these disciples were, and I pick some heads of grain because I'm hungry, I'm reaping. You say, like, just a handful? Yeah, I don't see how... No, yeah, I get you. But 
if I in any way separate one part of a plant from another part of a plant in, in the tradition that the Pharisees would have been following, that qualifies as reaping. So for instance, tree climbing is forbidden because if I climb a tree and I accidentally break off a branch, I'm reaping. So, um, so according to this definition, anything that you do that separates any part of a plant, you can't mow your grass, all right? Anything that you do that separates a part of a plant from another part of a plant is reaping, all right? Another category is sorting and purification. So let's say I have a bowl filled with Skittles and I wanted to remove the yucky yellow and orange Skittles so that the only ones that I have are, are the Skittles that are worth eating. I can't do that. All right? if, if you do that, then you're sorting. And if you're sorting, you're working. And if you're working, then you're not keeping the Sabbath day holy, so you may as well be singing an Ozzy Osbourne song as you sacrifice a goat to the devil. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees are like Jeff Foxworthy with his you might be, might be a redneck bit, but less funny, all right? If you're sorting the bad Skittles from the good Skittles, then you might be working on the Sabbath. If you're hungry and you pick some grain to eat, you might be working on the Sabbath. They've taken God's instruction, take a day every week to rest, and they've added hundreds of of additional rules. So Jesus clarifies, okay? Verses 27 and 28. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. They were all about following rules. Not God's rules even. Their rules. Don't climb a tree ain't one of the Ten Commandments. All right? They decided that these guys should go hungry on the Sabbath. It's not what God had in mind. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The command was given to benefit people. The Pharisees wanted to benefit themselves. They wanted to make themselves important at the expense of what's best for people. Jesus has already demonstrated that he is able to forgive sins. He's already shown that he can unparalyze the paralyzed. And he says, you are missing the point, Pharisees. The Sabbath isn't about seeing how many ways we can deny our needs to show God that he is important to us. It's about God knowing that we, you and I, have to take it easy sometimes. We need that time of rest. So Jesus declares, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Right? He is the fulfillment of the law. Go read Exodus chapter 20 where God gives the Ten Commandments. Are you able to keep every law of God? Nah. And God knows that. The law is there to show us that we are unable to meet God's perfect standard. Jesus came to call us into something greater. There's a saying that's come into common use the last dozen years or so. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I get the idea, 
But if somebody asks you to name what religion you're going to say, then what are you? I'm an atheist who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, that, that's not confusing at all, is it? But the truth is, Christianity is more than just a religion. Through Christ, we can have a relationship with God. Jesus came to show us that pleasing God isn't what the Pharisees made it out to be. He came to show that we can relate to God, not by trying to keep thousands of rules, but by placing our faith in his son. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. That's relationship. We can't be sinless, but because we belong to Christ, we should strive to sin less and to do what is right. But we can be his sheep. We can be relational with the creator and owner of the universe. He knows everybody, but he chose to spend time with you. You have a calling on your life. We already mentioned that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. What's that supposed to look like? Romans 8.29 tells us what God's goal is for each of us. It says this, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So we aren't just any new creation. We are destined to be made like Jesus. Because of Jesus, we are different. Because of Jesus, we are changed. Jesus can be, Jesus can make a difference for you. Three ways, all right? Like the paralyzed guy, he can give you a fresh start. Like Matthew, he can give you a purpose. As the fulfillment of God's law, he can make you, he can place you in a righteous relationship with God. So if this is what Jesus does, and if we are new creations of God who are supposed to be made into the image of Jesus, and if he is Jesus, maker of difference, then who should you be? You, maker of difference. You can be a difference maker too. Jesus didn't come at Christmas and then die that Easter. There are three decades in between those two occurrences. And what's he doing in between there? He was our example. All right. So Romans 8.29 tells us God's goal is to make us like his son. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, go and make disciples. Do you know who he said that to? His disciples. You know who wrote Matthew 28, 19 down? Same, same guy that Jesus saw here in Mark chapter 2 and told him, follow me. Remember that time you were collecting taxes and I told you to follow Matthew? Now you go do that for someone else. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you know what the last words of that are? Luke 10, 37, he tells, him, he tells the young man, go and do likewise. Jesus lived here 30 years to be our goal. So it doesn't matter how old you are. 
how long you have been living this Christian life. You are a new creation. Many of us are where we are in life today because someone chose to be a difference maker for us. It's entirely possible to honor their place in your life without dishonoring God. You probably don't want to build an altar and make sacrifices to them, but it's okay to thank them for the positive difference they've made in your life. But don't only thank them. Follow their example. Be a maker of difference for someone else. Christ made a difference in your life, and here's the key to the whole thing, okay? God made a difference for me so I can make a difference for others. I want you to say that with me because I want you to know this. You may not realize that you're a difference maker, but know this. All right, so say it with me. God made a difference for me so I can make a difference for others. Is there someone in your life who needs the change that you can offer? Is there a group of people that you're burdened for? Be intentional. You are a new creation through Christ. You're going to change whether you mean to or not. Change happens. You're going to create change in the lives of others who cross your path, whether you're trying to or not. But what's better than change? Making a difference. So go and be a difference maker. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity that we have to be together. I just thank you that you make such a difference in our lives and and that you change who we are, who we can be, that you give us purpose, that you change our direction. And God, if there's anybody in here who isn't saved, who who has never chosen to follow you, please just impress it on their heart that they would become a follower of yours today. But amongst all the followers of yours here today, I just ask you to please just help them to to own it, to say, yes, I can be a maker of difference and just choose to be someone for you to serve where you're calling them to serve. First in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.